Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T, and I hope you're all having a marvelous day. Today I'm going to talk more about the case that has its grip on me right now, the Debbie Collier case. The latest news is that the Habersham County detectives have asked the FBI to assist in the investigation into Debbie Collier's death. I think part of this may be down to the FBI's deep pockets. I learned from Bill Cannon of Police Off the Cuff that the police have to pay for recovering data off of people's devices. It turns out the phone companies don't do this work for free. Apparently, this is a very time-consuming task, and the phone company and others have special employees who get paid big bucks, like $500 an hour, to do this data recovery work, so it's expensive. Because sheriff's offices typically are working on shoestring budgets, it's better to have the FBI assisting on the case because they have much deeper pockets. And I think those eight search warrants that we heard about being ready to be delivered yesterday or the day before may have been one factor that led to Habersham detectives reaching out to the FBI. That's probably not the only reason, but it would likely be one of the reasons. Another bit of information, and I have to say this is secondhand and I haven't verified it, so take it with a grain of salt. Apparently the Venmo app that was created with Steve Collier's name and installed on Debbie Collier's phone was installed a little over a month before her death. The first transfer of funds allegedly occurred on August 2nd of 2022, and it was to Amanda Bearden from Debbie Collier. I'll just let that sink in with you for a bit. Let's move on to my next topic. Just like in the Summer Wells case, the little five-year-old girl who went missing on June 15th of 2021 in Rogersville, Tennessee, the Debbie Collier case has one person within the inner circle who seems to enjoy the limelight and his 15 minutes of fame. Summer's father, Don Wells, enjoyed that role as he turned up on YouTube true crime channels on a fairly regular basis. That is until he violated the terms of his probation by getting caught driving under the influence while on a live YouTube channel. You can't make this stuff up. In the Debbie Collier case, we have three pretty much silent players. Debbie's husband, Steve, her son, Jeffrey, and her daughter, Amanda Bearden. Yes, Steve Collier made comments one day, and Jeffrey wrote a beautiful post about his mom, but they haven't said any more than that that I'm aware of. The one loquacious player among the mix is Amanda's boyfriend, Andrew Geigerich. Andrew has been reaching out to various creators, including me, by making comments on posts and videos. He's clearly keeping an eye on what everyone is saying about the case. And, dare I say, I think he's maybe enjoying being in the limelight. He's definitely not shunning the cameras, and he hasn't been keeping his mouth zipped. Why is this? It doesn't seem smart from a potential suspect perspective. 
When I briefly chatted with Andrew, I kept the conversation to his past, his childhood, his parents, and his amateur MMA career. When the seasoned true crime creator Annie Elise of Ten to Life chatted with Andrew, she went straight in for information about the timeline. And surprisingly, Andrew answered her by sharing some additional times for the day Debbie Collier went missing. Before I get to those new unverified events and times, let me just say that I see some magical thinking in the things Andrew says. Andrew told Annie Elise that he and Amanda have been cleared by the police. His reasoning for this was that he and Amanda had only been interrogated by detectives one time 15 days ago, and they haven't heard back from the investigators since. He also stated that during the family's debriefing on the crime, the authorities did not ask them about their alibis, and they didn't tell the family when exactly they believe the crime occurred. Andrew also said that the police seized his and Amanda's phones three weeks ago, and thus, according to Andrew, the cops must know his and Amanda's locations on the day Debbie disappeared. Andrew wrote to Annie Elise that in his mind, all these things mean that the cops don't believe he and Amanda had anything to do with the crime. To me, this spells magical thinking on Andrew's part. And it also hints at Andrew believing, maybe, that he's smarter than the investigators. The police spent six hours searching his and Amanda's house three days after the crime. That tells me they think there may be evidence inside there. If Andrew and Amanda are responsible for the crime, we don't know that. I'm only speculating. But if they are, I bet they left their phones back at their house. Note that Andrew told Annie Elise this bit about being cleared from involvement before the Habersham Sheriff's Office said in a press conference that no one has been cleared. Andrew also told Annie Elise that he and Amanda were in Athens, Georgia, all day on Saturday, September 10th, the day Debbie Collier made that odd trip 60 miles away from home to the family dollar store in Clayton. To me, that sounds like it's the alibi that he and Amanda are sharing with the investigators about their whereabouts that day. Each one is vouching for the other one's whereabouts, or each one is counting on their respective phones being solid proof of where exactly they were when the crime occurred. Andrew also told Annie Elise that Amanda did not notice the Venmo for $2,385 with the cryptic sort of scary message until maybe an hour after it was sent. The Venmo was sent at 3.17 p.m., so that would mean that Amanda didn't notice the message until around 4.17 p.m., or let's say 4.30 p.m. Andrew explained away Amanda's not noticing the Venmo by telling Annie Elise 
that Amanda was busy house cleaning at the time. Never mind that Amanda also said that her mother was out buying her cleaning supplies that day. So what was the seemingly cash poor Amanda, at least cash poor until 3.17 p.m., using to clean the house with? Andrew also told Annie Elise that sometime on Saturday afternoon, Debbie and Amanda spoke on the phone. I would guess that Amanda's alibi likely also includes the trips that Andrew told Annie Elise Amanda made after noticing the Venmo message. Andrew said that Amanda drove to the Enterprise Rental Office, a Publix grocery store, Walmart and Target to look for her mother after she noticed the message. I'm pretty sure Amanda will be seen on the surveillance camera footage of these establishments. Great way to try and prove that you were nowhere near the crime scene. But I think things went down in the wooded area starting at 3.40 p.m., so it'll be interesting to see what time Amanda shows up on those cameras. But again, I'm speculating. I don't know if she's involved. So, according to Andrew and Amanda, Amanda, instead of dialing 911 right away, drove to all these shopping venues that her mother, Debbie, supposedly frequented, and Amanda said she was looking for her there. Would you do that before dialing 911 if your mom sent you a note that said they weren't going to let her go? And would you also do that when you'd already lost an hour because you didn't notice the Venmo until around 4.30 p.m. Now, I'm a tad OCD, so I know that I would have dialed 911 immediately, maybe even before calling my dad. I would have triaged things in my mind and thought that to get help to my mom as soon as possible, I need to call the police. And then I would have let my dad know that something weird was going on. But that's just me. And I have been called tightly wound by people who know me. Now, we know a police officer noticed Debbie's rental vehicle parked off the side of Georgia 15 near something called Victory Lane. I think I've got that right at 5 p.m. I would bet that that vehicle was there starting around 3.40 p.m. I think it's likely that Debbie was forced to drive to that location at the National Forest near Tallulah Falls or at Tallulah Falls right after she exited the Family Dollar Store parking lot at 3.19 p.m. Why dilly-dally when you have a crime to commit and the clock's a ticking, right? This new unverified information from Andrew about the timeline of Saturday hints to the sleuth in me that he and Amanda are trying to explain, maybe, why Amanda didn't dial 911 until 6 p.m. And actually, even then, it was Debbie's husband, Steve, so Amanda's stepfather, who made the first call to the police. And to me, at least, Steve didn't seem really all that concerned on the phone. He told the 911 operator that he just got home from work at 6 p.m. He said, I just got home. It appeared that the urgency about reporting Debbie missing at that point was really coming from Amanda, who was apparently at the Collier house 
before Steve got home because she clearly told him that she went upstairs in the house and found her mother's purse with her license and credit cards in it. And although we don't see this, it seemed like Amanda was standing near Steve throughout the 911 call, feeding him information about Debbie's purse and license. Steve actually seems a little confused by the whole thing. Note that as I'm saying this, it occurs to me that this is likely why Debbie Collier, when she was paying for the items at the family dollar store, first reached into her blue purse and then, remembering her wallet wasn't in it, reached into her pocket and pulled out a card. I think the perpetrator or perpetrators took Debbie's wallet out of her purse back at the Collier house that morning. And I think Debbie forgot in that confused moment at the cash register. Perhaps this is the one move Debbie Collier made in the store that day that hints to her being flustered and not in her right mind. In my opinion, taking the wallet out of Debbie's purse was part of the plan. Make no mistake, this crime was premeditated and carefully planned. That spells first degree M. I can't say the word on YouTube because they will demonetize the video, but I think you know what I mean. That would be the intentional doing in of another person. This was intentional, or as the police said, deliberate. Both Amanda and Andrew seem to be trying to push suspicion away from themselves and toward others. First, Amanda told Debbie's sister, Diane Shirley, an exaggerated version of the accident Debbie was involved in with the truck and the paint can. Then Andrew told Annie Elise a story about Debbie possibly being followed or possibly being hurt because Debbie was trying to get custody of someone else's child. Now, no one has been able to verify this story about Debbie trying to get custody of kids, so I don't know if that's true. It seems like it might be made up. Seeing photos of Andrew in his daily life post the crime, wherein he's standing outside the residence he and Amanda share, or maybe exiting a food mart convenience store with an energy drink and one of those dried noodle soup containers, I get the feeling he's not all that bothered that many web sleuths and the police seem to think he could possibly be involved. I say the police because they did get that search warrant to check out the house he lives in. That means the police have reason to believe there may be evidence there. Andrew also told me that he's planning on making a comeback with his MMA career, maybe get a fight in six months, and maybe even go pro. Mind you, he hasn't fought in four years, and he doesn't appear to be training hard to make that happen. But of course, we don't know everything Andrew does in a day. Maybe he is hitting the gym. Maybe he is loading up on protein and eating plenty of veggies. Andrew also told me that he needed to make a ton of money before his mom gets released from prison so that she doesn't ever have to work again. He clearly cares about his mother, 
But to me, at least, he doesn't seem too cracked up over Amanda's mother's horrific and disturbing death. I mean, I don't see him talking about what a wonderful person Debbie was and how devastating her death has been to him and Amanda and how much he wants the perpetrator caught. In fact, Andrew told Annie Elise that he hardly knew Debbie, despite him and Amanda dating for at least a year that we know of. I just feel that Andrew is very optimistic about his future, and he seems fairly convinced that he's not going to prison anytime soon. Now, that could be down to him knowing he had nothing to do with the crime, or it could point to him magically thinking that he, allegedly, will get away with this. This may be explained by narcissism. Hear me out. When I posted Andrew's mugshot and someone wrote a sort of negative comment under it about his appearance, I responded to it by writing that I thought Andrew had a nice-looking face. I was trying to soften the criticism of Andrew, who we don't know is even involved in this crime. You know, we're speculating, but he might not have anything whatsoever to do with it. This is when Andrew Geigerich turned up in my comments for the first time, and when he had yet to reveal himself as the author. He wrote this under his mugshot photo that I posted. That is a good-looking young man, end quote. Right after I saw that with his name as MMA125, I thought it could possibly be Andrew. It was later confirmed that it was indeed Andrew Geigerich. I wrote back this, but is he a kind and gentle young man who is incapable of evil deeds? That's the question, end quote. He replied with three laughing emojis and these words. That makes him sound soft, but sure. End quote. I found his response very interesting, the part about sounding soft in particular. I'm going to look more into narcissism because it turns out that many people who do other people in, if you know what I mean, especially those who do it repeatedly, while well, some of those people have been shown to be narcissistic, and many of them crave public notoriety and are often self-promoters. There is also something called narcissistic rage. It turns out narcissistic rage can fuel extreme violence. My source for this information was an article on the Psychology Today website. It definitely makes for a fascinating topic in conjunction with this case. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories, now do me a favor, it helps me so much, smash that like button, and if you found this interesting, leave me a comment.
she's uh, 59 years old. No, she has no medical issues, nothing like that. And according to her daughter, who went up and uh, her purse is still here with her driver's license. The only thing is the phone is gone, and she sent her daughter a text about two hours ago saying they won't let me go. Whatever that means, we don't know. And I've been gone all day parking cars for the football game.
Okay. Okay. 